0: and welcome to the Philip K Dick book club In each episode of this podcast, I give my thoughts on one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And today I am beginning what I think will be a six-part series on Dick's 1957 novel, Eye in the Sky. Now, Eye in the Sky is Dick's fifth novel. It's published in the same year as The Cosmic Puppets, and it even deals with similar themes. And I I think we can kind of pair those two books together thematically because they both talk about shifting realities but they do so in very different ways with very different political consequences and 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 just ideas different ideas are floating around but you know on on kind of a superficial level it's talking about the same kind of stuff so you may want to look at listen to my series on the cosmic puppets which is already up it's the series uh just preceding this this episode but as i talked about in that series With these two novels, The Cosmic Puppets and Eye in the Sky, Dick moved away from a concern he had in his early novels of really political dystopias. And I'm thinking here of The World Jones Made and Solar Lottery and um, The Man Who Japed. And even we could throw in Vulcan's Hammer, which wasn't published until 1960, but was written earlier. So those four novels kind of formed a, a set of stories Dealing with political dystopias, and I think in a way they're they're they all kind of function as Dick's response to Orwell because none of them are quite as rigid and eternal as the dystopia we get in in 1984. But anyways, that's what he talks about there. But here he really starts to focus on false fronts and shifting realities. Eye in the Sky is really a novel about how all of us look at the world in different ways and how our internal internal realities shape how we interact with others and how we see other people. Now, it's also a story of the anti-communist crusade. And this is really one of a handful of novels and stories that Dick wrote that really take on directly and in a very self-evident way, the anti-communist crusade. And here, Dick's point seems to be just the difficulties of ever really knowing what is inside a person's mind based on external observations. Right? Based on what you can see on the outside, you can't know if someone is a religious nut. You can't know if they are a communist. You can't know if they're paranoid, if they're a Puritan. Well, those are the four examples we get in the story. Um, but now let me just give you the broad plot before I go into the details. Uh, eight people while observing a, some kind of particle accelerator fall through and are v- zapped in some way by this Proton bean deflator or some kind of I don't know quite what it is the science behind it I think even dick isn't really clear on that but they fall through it and they they end up unconscious on the floor the minute that happens they start to enter into a world where none of the rules they expected are are seem to work and they realize that they're actually in the mental realm constructed by one of the people who fell through um, so one of the eight it has constructed this reality and it's basically how they see the world. And they get out of that and they go through three other false realities before they finally get out permanently. And that, that's basically what happens. It's its a fairly long novel by Dick Standard, especially at the time. It's 240 pages in the edition I have, which is the vintage edition. You know, In contrast, the previous novel, Cosmic Puppets, was about half of, half this length. Now, since this novel is based on a shared experience of eight different people who were victims of this accident, let me just list these people briefly so you know who they are. It is, it is important in this novel to keep these characters straight. There's not a lot, many of them, but there's a significant handful. Um, now, Jack Hamilton is our main protagonist in the novel, and he's a government electronic engineer or working for a firm that's a government contractor. Jack Hamilton begins the novel about to be fired from his job because his wife is a security risk. He takes a primary role in dismantling all of the mental realms the accident victims travel through. So he's really the protagonist in the sense that he's the one who figures most of the things out and figures out the way to move between these realms and and try to get out. He's very open-minded, he's kind of a classic mid 20th century liberal he's not religious very scientific but he has fears throughout the whole novel that his wife is actually a communist uh, not just a kind of a soft hippy dippy kind of lefty but actually a full-blown communist his wife is Marsha Hamilton she's the second and she's number two of the characters that go through this proton beam deflator she's the she's very energetic she's also very open-minded she's very much active in social causes she's well read and these these activities lead the government to suspect that she's a communist there's also hints that she's very sexually open-minded and you know it's, it's kind of a, it's actually kind of a fun relationship these two have because they are both so liberal and open-minded um, but the heart of the conflict between this relationship is this concern that that she's a communist which is something she denies then we have, uh, for number three, is Charlie LeFay. Lefeff? Lefef? McF I'll just say McFay. This is Jack Hamilton's co-worker uh, who exposes Marsha as a security risk. Although he does work to keep friendly with Ham- the Hamiltons, He's, he seems to be a friendly guy. And although he is kind of serious about this this idea that Marsha is a security wrist, a r- risk to the firm. He's very fond of drinking. He is very direct very confrontational and so he often plays kind of the bad cop sort of character in some of the interactions now he's a secret communist he's actually the real communist although really don't really notice till the end of the uh, end of the story and his mind is the inspiration for one of the variants of the real world that the characters have to go through the fourth character that goes through and experiences this is bill laws He's a promising nuclear engineer who's just graduated from college, although he's African American and this kind of condemns him to being stymied a bit in his career. And he's very frustrated about that. When we meet him, he's basically a tour guide for you know, these tourists visiting this, this um, scientific device. And he very much resents that he's been put in this role. So as a black man, he's often subject to the various racial assumptions of others when he enters the world they create. So some of the characters are very racist and project that racism onto the character Bill Law. So he's used by Dick to show how um, people's racist perceptions can influence how they interact with others and see other people. And so if they're in a world where someone sees black people, you know, talking a certain way, then Bill Laws talk that way. You know, it's kind of like that even forces these transformations these characters go through even transforms how they speak and think and and interact he proves to be very intelligent he's very level-headed throughout the novel he's also though one of the characters who is most attracted at the prospect of staying in these worlds because some of them actually are better for him than the real world and i think he, he presents sort of a challenge to the characters like the hamiltons who want to get out of this situation to say well you know You're leaving to a good world, but I'm leaving into, uh, you know, status as a second class citizen. And I'm not that keen on doing that. Next, we have Edith Pritchett. Now, Edith Pritchett is one of the creators of A Mental Realm. Uh, I won't go into too much of the details about this because I'll do that in the future episodes. But she's a very doting and very anxious mother. She's overweight. And basically, she... Creates a world that's really puritanical and where all the fences is is removed. Her son is David Pritchett. And I guess there's not that much to say about David Pritchett. He's just there as Edith's son. He has a bit of a role to play in, in in the world that Edith creates. Next, we have Joan Reese. She's also a creator of one of of one of these alternative realities. She's a businesswoman um, and she's a paranoid. And when she's given the chance, she establishes her own world. Based on, you know, how accident victims see the world, basically seeing themselves or a victim, how a victim might see the world, you know, under constant surveillance. Everything's a threat. Everything that goes wrong is the result of an actual conspiracy. And so she's basically a paranoid, and in her world that she creates, paranoia is manifest. And then finally, we have Arthur Sylvester. And he's a war veteran, and he's actually a religious nut. He follows the cult of Second Babism. Now, I'm not up on Babism. This is a real religious tradition. You know, I don't know if Second Babism is real, but Babism generally is a real thing. And I think it's a kind of an offshoot of Islam. That, and as a result, the Babists tried to bridge some of the different monotheistic faiths with a slightly different concept of God and a slightly different concept of prophecy. You know, that that means they couldn't really be Muslims because Muslims believed in the final prophecy of Muhammad. So they were kind of a a branch that came out of Islam and went its own way. Um, This character is, you know, a follower of this tradition and. In a way, his world is is maybe the most interesting that we get to experience. So those are the main, those are the eight core characters that we spend the novel with. There's a handful of other side characters that are significant. We have Colonel Edwards. He's Jack Hamilton's boss as a military contractor, and he's the one who forces Hamilton out due to security concerns about his wife. Then we have this other character, Dr. Guy Tillingford, and he's a boss at an electronics company, and he is going to be a character who changes in each of these different realms. He's the guy who's going to hire Hamilton after he, has, he decides Hamilton quit, wants to quit because of the issue with his wife. Well, he can't stay, right? So he needs another job. So he needs a job that's not as sensitive politically. So he gets this job here. But Guy Tillingford, he's a character who changes. And he's a, kind of a window into the different logic of each of these fantasy realms. So he appears in various forms, and that's very fascinating. There's only one other character who's really notable, and that will be Silky. Silky. Silky is a barfly and a prostitute. And Jack Hamilton is constantly having this desire to sleep with her. And this is the cause of some of the tension between him and his wife, although Martha Hamilton is even kind of playful and has a little bit of fun with that. She exists in all four fantasy realms. First, she appears as a prostitute. Then she's a bar patron and a friend of Marsha. Then she appears as a spider and finally as a Communist Party supporter. So like Guy Tillingford, she's a character who changes uh, in each setting um, based on the reality they're in. So those are the characters. It's it's just, you know, compared to some of the other novels I looked at in this series on Philip Dick, there's a bit more. So I thought it'd be useful to go through them a little bit. And this is such a character-driven story it's you know and, and the characters are actually fairly memorable i think dick has a lot of fun with this and that's one more thing to say here this is a really really funny novel there's laughs constantly throughout it because the rules of these worlds are so bizarre at times and the people how they experience it and try to make sense of it is just often really hilarious and it's a, it's a novel if you're reading it you will sometimes just laugh out loud as you're as you're going through it So, um, well, let's just go into the story a little bit. Um, Now, the story opens with a newspaper account recording the events of October 2nd, 1959. It took place at Belmont Bevatron, which is where a proton beam deflator malfunctions and destroys a platform holding eight sightseers. The eight people fall to the floor, four of which required hospitalization. So that's the event kind of from the objective standpoint. That's all we really that's objective everything else in the story is to some degree subjective so after this we were introduced to jack hamilton who's at work at this missile research lab he's visited by his wife marcia who invites him to lunch marcia we learn is very cheerful but hamilton is worried that he will he's going to get basically fired he's 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 getting the vibe right you ever had this at work you know this vibe that that you're gonna you're gonna be canned right He has this vibe, so he's quite anxious about this and he does in fact get a note from Colonel T.E. Edwards, his boss, asking him to come to his office and these confirms his worries he has. In Edwards office, Hamilton is told that Charlie McFaith, the department's security office, right, has identified his wife as a security risk basically because of uh, her suspicion that she's a communist. And he says, you'll be denied access to classified information until the situation with your wife is resolved. And he basically gives him two choices, right? That you're either gonna be fired or you you leave your wife. And Hamilton is quite furious at this. And he's, you know, he doesn't want his work to be disrupted and he certainly doesn't want to lose his job. And then McFaith goes through the specific charges and evidence that's, and he lays out that she subscribes to this newsletter, she donated to this cause, she's been to this meeting. and. It shows a fairly effective surveillance state. Marsha's activities are all laid out there. You know, she, what parties she joined, what pro-left group she supported. Hamilton defends his wife, saying that she's just basically a, a liberal. And they say, well, no, the risk is too high. If there's any chance that she's a communist, we can't risk it because we work for the government. And, they, and he makes a specific point that they can never look into her mind to know the truth. And this sets up the major theme of the novel, how we never really know anyone until we get to their head. So this is, in fact, like a true statement, as, as we learn, as we, you know, when we start to experience people's minds. They tell Hamilton that he needs to either prove her innocence or, or leave her. To have his clearance restored. And so basically at this point he's fired. McPhee invites Hamilton and his wife out for a friendly dinner. Showing that despite the situation they're in. He does seem to like these people. And he's kind of a a social figure. He likes to drink. And he, he's he's fairly friendly. But he's so straightforward and honest. And, and at times brutal. I actually think he's, he's a fairly likable character. Often in this novel. Now here's the important quote here. Where where we're told that this novel is about what's really in our head. Quote, I believe in my case. I've known you and Marcia as long as you've worked here. I like you both of you, and so does Edwards. Everyone does. That's not the issue, though. Until we have telepathy and can get into people's minds, we're going to have to depend on this statistical stuff. No, we can't prove Marcia's an ancient of a foreign power, and you can't prove she isn't. In abeyance, we'll have to resolve the doubt against her. We simply can't afford to do otherwise. Has it ever occurred to you to wonder if she is a communist? Now, there's a few other things in this opening passage. One is gender roles. Marsha doesn't seem to conform to the standard gender roles of the time. And Hamilton at one point even says, like, what do you want her to just dust the mantelpieces? And um, and that's that. that. So that's this is a fairly interesting character. I think this is one of the better wi- women characters that Dick creates in some of his early novels. So... After this, Charlie McFaith is discussing the evening plans with with Marsha, trying to explain and apologize for the unfortunate situation they're in. He's attracted to her and. He doesn't really want. You know, it's, it's not going to happen that Jack's going to leave her for the job. Right. And it's, it seems that Charlie at some level wants that to happen. Um, so they they basically said they're going to go out for drinks later after witnessing the startup of the new equipment. So they're going to kind of look at this particle proton accelerator thing and, you know, observe it. And then after that, go out for a night uh, of drinks, the three of them. Hamilton, though, is shaken by the decision put before him. He, he realizes he's, he's going to have to come to some truth about his relationship and his values. But he's very, very sore at McPhee for destroying his life or potentially destroying his life and destroying other people's lives through what's essentially in his mind, a paranoid system. And so paranoia comes again and again in this story, especially with one of the realms they're in. But you know, the society, the real world society is quite paranoid as well, at least in terms of this fear of communism. So they go to visit this and they're joined with this group of sightseers who are there to witness the start of this new particle deflator. And again, I don't really know what a particle deflate deflator is supposed to do. It's, it's some kind of accelerator. I think now the young, a young black man leads them in the tour of the deflector there. This is um, Laws, Bill Laws, an important character that we get to know a lot about. He, there's a, also a young man who's David Pritchett. And he asks a lot of questions. He's with his mother, Edith. And she asks questions as well about, uh, and she's actually eager to compare this power of the technology to God. So there's kind of a hint here that maybe she's very religious. Martha and Jack Hamilton argue about recent events. And so a lot is going on in this scene where basically everyone's kind of doing their own thing. Some people are interested in the device. Some are just walking through to observe it. Blows is just doing his job. Martha and Jack Hamilton are worried about their careers. So everyone's kind of doing their own thing. Jack at one point even tries to red bait his wife, which sparks a further argument, and as the argument goes on, the Bevatron deflator malfunctions and destroys the walkway. But I, I think there's something significant here in that everyone is kind of in their head in their own way when this happen accident happens. They're all they're all obsessed with some aspect of of the world, and of their like their mental realm is on the forefront of their minds, right? This, these questions of communism and religion and This horrible job that Laws has and how he doesn't want to be there. This is all probably in their head when this happens. So the accident happens and they fall and Jack Hamilton realizes he's injured and he may not get up for a long time after the accident takes place. So Jack Hamilton eventually wakes up in a hospital and he's greeted by his his wife, his wife, Marsha. She tells him that everyone survived the accident but the war veteran arthur silverster was very badly injured they learn that the government is covering their medical care due to the nature of the accident and jack hamilton decides that he will need to find work outside of the classified government projects he basically that's closed off and he's going to stay with his, with Marcia and and do that so Marsha begins to Regret her own political playing around and how that got her husband into trouble and maybe put their family into some jeopardy But Jack assures her that the anti-communist scare is just a sign of the times You know, and she makes a point that's actually I think historically true is that a few decades earlier Someone like McFaith would have been deemed a fascist and communism was more accepted, you know Back in the Roosevelt years, but now in the Eisenhower years, there's all this paranoia about communism they basically agree that they're going to start something new. Um, but they also figure out that something is off in this world. It's actually kind of a bizarre place they woke up into. The rules that they're used to don't aren't going on anymore. So the Hamiltons are driven home along with Joan Reese, uh, a young businesswoman. we didn't really learn much about her earlier, but she was part of the tour as well. They discuss everyone's injuries. They discuss how lucky they were that no one was more severely hurt, and how this is actually a bit odd. Jack lies about the condition of Silverster. Now, a, a, importantly, a bee stings Jack. And at their home, the couple invite Reese inside for a cup of coffee. The Hamiltons and Joan Reese, Rice Reese, I guess, uh, Joan Reese discuss Jack's cat, who is named Nini Numcat. Jack mentions that cats don't have souls, and Marcia gets piqued by this. And she remembers that Jack never discussed anything about souls before. So this is an introduction of something odd. And they've hinted generally about oddness in this world. But this is the first specific example of something really off in the world. You know, just talking. So suddenly Jack's talking about souls. And one thing we learn is when these characters are in this world, they do change their attitudes and how they speak and and how they think. And they, they remain somewhat conscious of how they used to be. But they are the projections of the, the dominant f- creator of that world do, are thrust onto the characters. Marcia feels that she's in a primordial place, and that's how she calls it, quote-unquote, a primordial place. So she thinks the world has really changed since the accident. Reese has a different kind of suspicion. She suggests that the accident was intentional, and she actually says she was the target. So we get a hint here about her paranoia being introduced into the story. She suddenly expresses disgust and hatred for the cat. And this provokes Jack's anger and he threatens her. And outside, now here's where things really start to get weird. Because outside, a swarm of locusts descends on them. They escape into the house and Jack Hamilton comes to agree with his wife that something has really changed in in this world that they're living in. And here's how it's described. From the air above his head, a shower of locusts descended. Buried in a swarming mass of vermin, Hamilton struggled frantically to escape. The two women and the tomcat stood paralyzed with disbelief. For a time, he rolled and fought with the horde of crawling, biting, stinging pests. Then dragging himself away, he managed to bat them off and retreat, panting and gasping to a corner. Merciful God, Marcia whispered, stricken, backing away from the buzzing, flapping heap. Now, it's interesting that Marcia, who's never presented before as religious you know, makes a call out to God at this point. And this isn't the first time this happened because, you know, it was mentioned before just in the same chapter here that Jack talked about souls, which is something he wasn't um, keen to do. So this gets us a a little bit way into the novel. I'm going to take my time with it, go through it with with six episodes because I do think there's a lot of interesting things to say about it. But this sort of sets up what's happened. Essentially, Jack finds his wife is being suspected of a communist he has to quit his job uh, but the night that's his last night at work he's in this accident and they wake up in a world where the, the Roman rules apply and our big evidence for this is a swarm of locusts that comes through a biblical plague if you will has has come through uh, to revenge them to punish them for something so that's where I'll leave us off and in the next episode we'll we'll learn a lot more about this new world we're in and we're gonna have a lot of fun with it and dick really goes wild with with this i I think this is one of the first novels where dick really starts to little go wild with his imagination you know he's not content with just one political dystopia he gives us four and it's really great i really love this novel so anyways thanks so much for listening if you have any of your own comments about eye in the sky please leave them below uh you can you can or you can send me an email at 100 Um, Please listen to my other episodes on the works of Philip K. Dick. I'm going through all his stories and all of his novels. Um, so again, thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back next time with part two of "I in the Sky. That living dies That living